Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. We're coming back after a brief hiatus following the ABA Dispute Resolution Section's Spring Conference. From here on, we're planning on putting out two episodes per month. So subscribe through Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts to keep up with all our new content. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Thomas Carboneau of the Penn State School of Law in University Park. Professor Carboneau is the Samuel P. Orlando Distinguished Professor of Law and the Director of the Penn State Institute of Arbitration Law and Practice. Today, we'll be talking about Lamps Plus v. Barilla, a recent Supreme Court case on class action arbitration. Good afternoon, Professor, and thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Good afternoon, Adam. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I hope we have a fruitful discussion. Well, Professor, it it feels good to be able to turn the tide of the normal uh, classroom discussion on you, since I'll be asking you questions about a case for a change. So, as I understand it, Lamps Plus uh, versus Barilla is one of the latest in a strand of cases by the Supreme Court that limits when a party can uh, seek to compel arbitration on a class-wide basis. So, as I understand it, the facts before the the district court were pretty simple and straightforward. Lamps Plus was an employer, and uh, they, in some way, allowed hackers to steal tax information from a number of employees. Um, The plaintiff, Varela, eventually discovered that someone filed a fraudulent tax return in his name, um, so he sued, I believe, under a theory of negligence uh, regarding the leak. Um, Lamps Plus moved to compel arbitration on an individual basis rather than a class-wide basis. Um, but the district court found that the agreement contemplated class-wide arbitration and granted um, a class-wide arbitration in favor of Rila. Um Would you like to talk a little bit about the district court's reasoning and how it came to that conclusion? Well, I think it came to the conclusion that it did uh, out of an abundance of lack of caution because it stated that the parties had agreed to something that they never mentioned in their opinion, and it was the court's view that these parties, uh, had they been the court in those circumstances, would have agreed to both FAA arbitration and class arbitration. And that is a a fairly uh, inventive and pretty much uh, unsubstantiated claim. So I think the district court overstepped its authority, and I, I think that's partly why the court uh, issued the opinion that it did. One one thing I thought was interesting about the decision, it, it seems to rely on this rule that was, um, I believe, created by California courts that distinguishes Stolt-Nielsen. Um, and it says um, Stolt-Nielsen is limited where an arbitration agreement is silent in the sense that the parties not reached an agreement on the issue of class arbitration, not simply that the clause made no express reference to class arbitration. 
So this this distinction between silence and a lack of agreement that's that seems to be a, a totally judicially created notion. And it, it, do you know if that's unique to the California courts? Um, it seems to be uh, a pretty interesting way to get around Dalton Nielsen's um, what what I thought was a pretty straightforward declaration that you must have a express agreement to get into class arbitration. Well, as as Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts says, silence isn't enough, and I think there are lots of reasons why the court goes in that direction. I'm not sure that the district court opinion favors or disfavors consumers or companies. It's very unclear what its ultimate objective is in adding content to the party's arbitration agreement. Uh, so what, what that means, I, I'm not sure if it, you know, it goes beyond the Ninth Circuit. It goes, does it go beyond California where the courts are very antagonistic to arbitration and arbitrability. I don't think this is an example of it. I think it's, uh, in my view, uh, an example of judicial intrusion into what the parties agree. This is what the court believes they should have agreed to, and it becomes factual uh, and true because the court declares it to be so. Uh, I find that very disturbing uh, because the parties don't have contract freedom anymore. They have contract freedom as validated by by a court of law. Well, I think the the Supreme Court gets into that in their in their opinion quite a bit. Um, but before we get there, I, I, reading the Ninth Circuit opinion, they, they pretty much affirm the district court opinion, um, and they say they agree that Stolt-Nielsen doesn't strictly apply. I, I didn't read that to add anything more, much more to the discussion from the district court. Um, did you have any other thoughts on the Ninth Circuit's opinion, or do you think it just adopts well, the... I, I, I do, uh, in the sense of both of the California courts, the district court and the appellate court, both make reference to Stolt-Nielsen, which is one of the most controversial opinions that the U.S. Supreme Court has rendered in, in, in uh, many years in the development of arbitration law. Uh, Stolt-Nielsen was decided by Justice Alito. It was his first case on arbitration. And what it stands for is the principle that uh, there should be a legal foundation for whatever the arbitration agreement says uh, or is in interpreted to say. Uh, and it was uh, a restriction on arbitration, arbitrability, uh, in that the court didn't simply affirm what the arbitration industry did, because this was a, 
a question of agreeing to class arbitration, the maritime arbitrators deferred to uh, AAA arbitrators just on the question of jurisdiction. Usually, as it did in Sutter, the following case, S-U-T-T-E-R, in in Sutter, the court looked at what the arbitrator, how the arbitrator interpreted uh, the contract of arbitration. It was as fanciful, if not more, than what the AAA arbitrators said about the arbitration clause in uh, Stolt-Nielsen, it was less uh, firm, it was less coherent, it was less organized, and the court, uh, through Justice Kagan, uh, just validated that reference. Uh, so I'm not sure what the status of Stolt-Nielsen is. Uh, you, I think the law currently provides that the arbitrators determine their own jurisdiction and its scope, which is uh, an enormous grant of independence to arbitrators, uh, and that's usually perceived by people who like arbitration as good. It It does give the arbitrators a whole lot of power. But, but I do think this Lamps Plus case is about how the court believes arbitration agreements should be interpreted. I think that's the uh, organizing message uh, of Justice Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. Well, I understand the the Supreme Court relies pretty heavily on uh, on Stolt Nielsen in reaching its decision here. Um, they they cite to the general um, crucial differences that have been discussed in Concepcion and Stolt Nielsen as well, and, and say that it, it seems to me that they're saying um, in order to find uh, an agreement to uh, arbitrate on a class-wide basis, you need more than just kind of an implied consent. You need the arbitration agreement itself, but also something more, something affirmative and unambiguous that refers um, the parties to class-wide arbitration. I'm not sure it goes that far. I think the court says silence isn't enough. That leaves open the question of how much is uh, necessary to get there, but but the court hasn't gone in that, uh, hasn't explained this very much, I don't think. Fair. So, if, so, and here the court pretty um, clearly says that you can't use a rule like the contraproferentum rule, which I, I believe, as they describe it, um, goes beyond the intent of the parties. It It is kind of an afterthought after the court has said the agreement is ambiguous, and says that the court can't discern um, the intent, the original intent of the parties, then the contra proferentum rule comes in to um, to kind of construe the language of the contract against the drafter, but it's kind of yeah. divorced from the, the ultimate intent of the parties. Does that does that sound accurate? 
No, no, it's it's very accurate. That's what the court does say. I don't think it means a word means a word of all of that. I think this is just window dressings to make the opinion uh, look more legal than it really is. Uh, all of this discussion about party intent, for example. Uh, is is superfluous. It, it has no real meaning when uh, the arbitration agreement is adhesive. So th there's no party intent except that of the drafter that's respected. So uh, uh, I'm not sure if party intent solves it. The court hangs on to that idea uh, with with a great ferocity that uh, arbitration agreements reflect contract freedom, and if the parties didn't agree to it or agree to a particular form of arbitration, that's the law. And uh, arbitration is way too policy laden <laughs> to to be decided by that sort of aphorism, you know is my view. Do you think the, the the decision would have been otherwise had a, say, a neutral state rule um, had referred the parties to a document outside of the, um, the arbitration clause itself? For example, if the application of a neutral rule led the court to look to um, an email or something that clarified that the parties did, in fact, intend to go to class arbitration. Do you think the court would have decided differently in this case if that had been, if the intent element had been more clear? Uh, it's difficult to speculate. It's all conjecture. Uh, I think the court's purpose five to four in every arbitration case is to validate the reference to arbitration. Lamps Plus is a bit outside of the ordinary because here there's no question but that the parties agreed to arbitrate in an adhesive contract, uh, which has no freedom of bargain to it at all. Uh, but, but the point was for the court, did they agree to both FAA arbitration and class arbitration. So this is a bit of a unique case. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has shown no particular fondness for class litigation. Uh, it sees it, I believe, as a very disruptive procedural factor in the, the legal system and in the processing of, of cases. Uh, so the court is not very disposed to upholding reference to class action almost in any setting. But this distinction that it establishes in this case clearly between FAA arbitration, normal regular arbitration, and class arbitration uh, it's very interesting. It was also in Stolt-Nielsen, uh, and it was a point that Justice Alito 
uh, made that has continued to be effective in the law of arbitration is that class litigation is not arbitration because you lose all the advantages of arbitration, says this court and said Justice Alito in Stolt-Nielsen. Class action is contrary, a contradiction to uh, the idea of arbitration. And I think that view has a lot of wisdom to it because I don't see how you can uh, arbitrate class action litigation. The AAA has done it for a number of years. Uh, it was being ingenious and it adapted class litigation to arbitration in order to preserve the reference to arbitration and, and you know that that's a policy it's a position but FAA arbitration is different from class arbitration and FAA arbitration is the court's concept <laughs> you're not going to find it anywhere in the text of the statute uh, because everything now in arbitration US arbitration is defined by the emphatic, strong, liberal, uh, uh, federal policy uh, favoring arbitration. So I'll stop now, and you can ask me something else or react to this. <laughs> well, Professor, I think the big takeaway question I have after reading this this case is, short of a sentence in the arbitration agreement saying the parties agree to submit claims to class arbitration. Is there, do you see any other way to achieve class arbitration or is, does the court saying unless you expressly unequivocally spell it out, um, that's the only way you're getting in? Well, I think if I were practicing law and drafting arbitration clauses for clients, I'd adopt that view in a second because you got to say what you mean. And it doesn't have to be lengthy. It doesn't have to be footnoted. You don't have to have a pile of references. But I think this opinion forces, encourages, demands that parties and parties' counsel say what they mean that employment arbitration disputes shall be submitted to arbitration in its ordinary sense uh, or shall be submitted, can be submitted to class litigation procedures. But it's simple enough to say these things. And I, I think the court is very reluctant, as was Justice Alito in Stolt-Nielsen to just say that class arbitration is fine, so there's no distinction between judicial class litigation and arbitral class litigation, and that's a falsehood. There's a great deal of difference. And if you choose to litigate by class procedures, you're really not choosing arbitration. I think somehow that should be clear, uh, but it is the burden of the drafter, of the counselor, 
to make clear what the choice really is, especially in adhesive contracts, because there's only one party who drafts that. And, uh, class litigation is the reason that all of these California companies used to support arbitration. No company in the United States, uh, except any company owned by Justice Ginsburg, no company in the United States wants to go through class litigation. And there are, in, in uh, Concepcion, uh, Justice Scalia uh, made clear that uh, class litigation is a special form of litigation that is not effective for every case, and it has a very cynical possible interpretation or view or reason in the American legal process. Uh, he also said that before class action, people still uh, you know, enforce their rights. So I'm not sure that class litigation is the solution. I think lawyers like it, uh, on the plaintiff's side, like it a lot because it generates a substantial sum of money and there's nothing wrong with making money. Uh, but whether it's suitable, uh, whether it's really different from FAA arbitration, uh, are, are the questions that need to be answered. And here the court sort of, uh, it, it at least notes this controversy. It doesn't provide a solution. I think the only real solution is absolute clarity or as close as you can get to it in the drafting of arbitration agreements. No, that's a, that's a great takeaway. I think Say what you mean is um, a good principle to follow. Yeah. I mean, it, if you don't do it, you're in trouble or your client's in trouble. Right. So I, I have two more questions about the opinion overall, and then I'll let you go if that's okay. Yep. So I think judging by Justice Breyer's dissent, he, he thinks the, the question the court should have stopped on is, do we have jurisdiction in the first place? And he seems to say that, you know, the Ninth Circuit should have, um, should not have uh, taken this case to begin with. Well, uh, my reaction to that phase of the opinion, uh, and he dissented, right? This was not a, a concurring opinion. Well, he said we shouldn't take Correct. the case at all. So, right. Uh, let me say first that Justice Breyer has written all of the major cases on arbitration. He is not an enemy of arbitration in any sense. You know, he's written Kaplan, Terminex, BG Group. All of those opinions are highly supportive of the reference to arbitration. So Justice Breyer accepts the court's policy and has contributed a great deal to framing it. Why he chooses jurisdiction to take a position on this, 
I frankly thought it was evasive. He didn't really want to talk about this, and he really didn't want to annoy his liberal colleagues that he usually votes with uh, at all. So he, he went on a tangent about jurisdiction. Uh, I, I think it's a lawyer's point. I think it has academic value. Uh, I think it's an interesting position, uh, but this doesn't define what Justice Breyer contributes or thinks about arbitration, because as usual, this was five to four. Uh, the four liberals went one in one direction, and uh, the majority went in the other. Thank God that Justice Thomas uh, chose to uh, write a concurring opinion rather than dissent. Uh, but on class litigation, on uh, adhesive arbitration, uh, there is unity in the court in two camps. And I think Breyer usually votes with his colleagues on the left or on the liberal side of the court. Uh, and he, I, I think, didn't want to agree with either side because maybe he felt this case didn't have enough oomph to it in doctrinal terms. But, you, you know, Justice Ginsburg was... You know, she wanted to save all of the downtrodden and unfortunate people, and somehow the reference to arbitration doesn't achieve that. So uh, there, there are lots. There's a whole discussion about the ideology that underlies consumer adhesive employment arbitration that doesn't apply to. FAA arbitration as a commercial remedy. So uh, whatever you politicize, you make resolution impossible, in my view. But but I think Breyer made a point about jurisdiction. It wasn't very significant. Uh, who the hell knows who's right? And I think he did it because he didn't want to. He didn't want to take a real position on this case. That's what I think. I, I think the main, the the actual opinion, pretty easily dispensed with that, and just said there's there's no distinction to be made here. It's a it's a final order, and just because Lamps Plus didn't get everything that it wanted, um, doesn't make it any less of a final order. So I don't I don't think there's a lot of impact there, other than as you said the the academic uh, question. Right. Well, this is section uh, 16 of the FAA. Uh, there's always been a, a lot of talk or discussion about what that actually means, uh, but but it doesn't really surface in this case. Uh, uh, what what I think is important, if you want that assessment, is, is that uh, the court is saying clearly. Class arbitration ain't like FAA arbitration. And if you want both, you have to say it. And I'm not sure 
you would want to choose arbitration uh, necessarily in the consumer area unless you adjusted to the alleged inequities between employees and employers. But that's one fundamental part of this opinion to me is that silence is not enough and FAA arbitration and class arbitration are different animals. So those are two real contributions, at least to my understanding of how the court is uh, uh, constructing uh, uh, another response to a problem of arbitration. Well, you've you've been very generous with your time, and I think you've given us a lot to, to think about. It's been a great conversation, but I want to let you go since we have been talking for so long. And I know you have some upcoming um, publications and projects that you want to talk about. So before we go, I want to give you the opportunity to plug anything you have in the pipeline. Well, in the pipeline, I, I have one thing out and another thing I'm preparing, but both of them are case books, one on uh, the U.S. law of arbitration and the other on international litigation and arbitration, but they're teaching texts, so I'm not sure uh, if there's any interest out there in those. I do publish a treatise. Uh, on arbitration uh, that I recently revised, meaning in the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, that's sold by Juris Publishing. It's in its sixth edition, I think. And I also write a chapter in uh, the Moore's Federal Practice book uh, on arbitration where uh, in which I say all the same things that I usually say. Uh, so those are my most recent projects. Uh, and I, I must say that I have built a career around arbitration. Uh, when I, I began when arbitration was pretty dry, uh, meaning not fruitful, but now it's become a colossus. So I'll leave it at that. Well, Professor, thank you for giving so much of your time, and it's been a great conversation. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, um, and I'm sure that uh, a lot of interested uh, individuals will be listening in. So thank you. Thank you, Adam, for the opportunity. It was a pleasure to talk to you about arbitration, and I usually am unstoppable on that issue. But thank you. And to our listeners, please check back in two weeks for another episode of Resolutions.